Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Another deadline which is coming up, of course, is next week, and that is the uh, uh, legalization of cannabis, which is going to be happening, of course. And we've talked about that over the last couple of days on the show about the implications, and there are many, of course, uh, uh, enforcement, uh, distribution, et cetera, et cetera. But what about cannabis in the workplace? What about people that are using it and still have to go to work? And among those, of course, are our first responders, including Hamilton Police. Uh, a number of police services are wrestling with this issue right now. Uh, Toronto, the RCMP, so many others, and of course, Hamilton Police Services. Now, as of today, they have yet to do a, actually have announced a policy on this. But the uh, police services uh, looking at this right now, and there are some ramifications to this uh, for the frontline officers and everybody else involved in Hamilton Police Services. I want to bring uh, Clint Twollin into the uh, conversation. He's the president, of course, of the Hamilton Police Association as he joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Thanks for the time, Clint. Good to have you on the show again today. No, thanks for having me. Where, where, I assume you be uh, talked about here that as they're trying to develop a policy on this. Are you at the table here to try to develop this and get some idea and some 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 substance to what's going on here? Uh, no, I'm not at the table. Uh, I have had discussions with the chief. I reached out to him uh, a little while ago asking the status of where the policy was at if one had been developed, um, and I have had some informal talks with him, but as far as formal talks sitting down at a table, no, I've not been part of that. Are your members concerned about this? Um, well, it has an effect on them, so uh, it's not something that, uh, it's, it's funny because um, while legalization is coming just around the corner, it's, it's, it, it's not a hot-button topic so much for the officers from the standpoint of they, you know, they're they're anxious and they and and they need information. I think uh, we're taking a, a much more pragmatic approach as far as, uh, you know, it, it's going to be legal and uh, we're no different than anybody else. And so uh, we're going to be responsible and do what we always do. So, being you know um, the not having the policy out right now, I don't think it's a, it's a, a big concern for our front line. You are like everybody else, but on another level, though, Clint, you are different. I mean, you are held to a higher standard, and and, and I guess that's got to be factored into this as well. Yeah, we are held to a higher standard, and, and we expect that from every one of our employees, both sworn and civilian. Mm-hmm. So uh, I don't see this, uh, again, I think this is a little bit of, we're chasing the boogeyman here a little bit, because... Um, I, I don't see this as being any different than any of the other either, well, I will say legal substances, uh, if you're looking at alcohol, or you're looking at uh, any of the opioids. I mean, our officers are no different than anybody else. They suffer injuries. They're prescribed medications. Uh, we expect them to come to work fit for duty and not be abusing the substances that they're, they, they have legal access to as well. I'm glad you put it in that perspective because I, I, I think we need to have that discussion and maybe the public needs to be aware of the fact that, uh, that, that you know, let's face it, I mean, you're, you're human beings like everyone else is and, and there may be people that use this. And, and again, I'm not one of these people that are saying, oh my God, when it comes legal, everybody's going to run out and start smoking pot now. Uh, that's not going to happen. But uh, there may be people that would uh, be using this stuff and obviously if they have to put a uniform on, whether they be a, a first responder in police services or fire or, or, or paramedics, whatever the case might be. You just used a phrase called fit for duty, and I guess that's really the, that's, that's the key phrase here, and I guess the definition of that is, is, is probably what they're wrestling with here. 
Well, and it's but the the thing is, Bill, it's already laid out with the Police Services Act, Occupational Health and Sa- Safety. Uh, our frontline officers know through policy and procedure. Um, this is nothing new, and I, I, like I said, I, I, I'm a little surprised by the, the anxiety that's that seems to be um, forming here because our officers are they, they know what they're what's what's expected of them. They're going to come to work, and they're going to be fit for duty. I don't expect any less, and I don't think they do either. So, with that in mind, then, uh, how do you define fit for duty, or is that really for you to define? Well. You're going to be expected to be in a in a condition in in which you can perform your duties, and um, you know I don't think it's a really there's a lot of variation to the definition. Um, if there's any signs of impairment whatsoever, we're well aware as and and me being a road supervisor when I am back at work, uh, like uh, on the service, I would expect each and every one of my officers to show up being able to perform their duties and to, to show absolutely no signs of impairment. And impairment, again, um, that's, that is the more subjective issue here. So for, for, for the definition itself, for me, it's really quite simple. When you show up for work, you have to show up in a condition that you're able to properly conduct your duties. And uh, based on the fact that we're driving uh, um, police cruisers, we're carrying guns, we're carrying use of force options, I expect each and every one of those officers to be able to do their jobs without any any substances, whether it be marijuana or anything else, that's going to hinder their ability to perform the duties. But just, let's talk about impairment, though. And again, what you've just suggested here is the standard that's already in place, obviously, and has been uh, forever, of course, to do with anything, to do with uh, you know any kind of a, uh, alcohol consumption or, as you mentioned, uh, you know, painkillers, whatever the case might be. We get that. But with this, uh, I guess the thing that a lot of people are concerned about now, at least that I've heard of and, and read uh, some of the concerns from other police services around the country, is look at uh, this is this is a bit of a different animal. I mean, you know, cannabis stays in your system a lot longer. Does that mean you're impaired if it's still in your system? And I guess that's one of the ideas that's being batted around here now. Yeah, and and there's no exact science on this. Yeah, uh, exactly. But- and, and it's funny, too, Bill, that even with alcohol, there's no exact science. Impairment, what we, we can certainly look at um, the science behind blood alcohol levels and whatnot and what, what would constitute somebody being uh, over a legal limit. But I can tell you, I mean, I have been a breath tech. I can tell you that there are alcoholics out there who get pulled over who show little to no signs of impairment but come in and blow 400 um, that happens, and so impairment, impairment is a subjective um, issue, and I know I've spoken with our, our drug recognition expert. She has kind of enlightened me on to some of the things that are, are taken into account. They do what's, what's called divided attention task um, um, testing, so that means that they, 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 they subject the person to a number of different tasks all at once and see if they can perform it. That's, that's probably the most significant way to, to determine impairment when it comes to marijuana, but it's different for everybody, and just uh, the, the science itself and saying there's a particular um, amount, whether it be two to five nanograms or whatever it is in your bloodstream, that doesn't dictate impairment. That's more of a subjective thing that, that um, we have to probably focus on a lot more as far as frontline supervisors go, but what's impairment, to, or the, the amount of consumption to me, as a, compared to you, those those will vary as far as impairment levels go. Exactly, which is one of the reasons why I, I know there's a great deal of concern, again, about drug testing and about uh, random testing in situations like that. What's your read on that, Clint? 
Well, the testing again is going to be uh, it's going to be problematic because again the 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 single way to find out what is going on in your bloodstream and that's that's what's going to have an effect on on your performance and and your impairment. The only way to test for that is through blood, and so blood uh, test or the taking of blood is a very invasive way of um, of of determining uh, whether or not a person has anything in their system. And so that is going to be a huge problem. And it, we've talked, um, I've talked with my peers about this. I don't see it being any different as far as the the uh, authority to be able to demand uh, a blood sample. Um, it, it, no different than somebody that uh, that we, we've got under arrest. I mean, the, it's, it's, it's fairly... Um, it, it's not an easy thing to do, and so that I think is going to get worked out, uh, unfortunately, through litigation. Uh, that's that's what I see coming in the near future. But and I know that uh, there are some employments or employers rather that actually you know adhere to this idea about about random testing, etc. But but then again, we run into that, that roadblock that you just talked about a couple of minutes ago. It may well be in your system, but does that necessarily mean that you're impaired by that? I mean, how long ago did you take it? I mean, and, and you're getting into, I guess, really, it comes down to civil rights issues. It is. It's a constitutional uh, issue, and I just read this morning that Edmonton came out with a, uh, the same policy as Calgary. And, and I have to say this, too, Bill, that this, uh, this notion about 28 days uh, before uh, coming to work, um, the Toronto model, I, I think it's ludicrous. I think that that's nothing more than an attempt to circumvent the Constitution because I don't know of any police officers who are able to take 28 straight days off. It, it, it in essence, excludes. It, it, is, it might as well be a complete ban on the usage. usage. So, um, you know... The, it, it, the, there's a whole bunch of other issues that come into play here. Uh, fat, and that's where uh, THC and CD, uh, CBD is stored. That is, um, it can be stored in the system through a number of different avenues, and one of them is secondhand smoke. So if you go into a house where three or four are smoking weed, uh, you're now exposed, and you have your body will now absorb uh, that those those chemicals. I don't know what to say. If there's a zero tolerance policy, are those officers supposed to walk out of there and go to their supervisor and file an IOD report and then take the next 28 days off work? I don't know how they're going to deal with that because it will show up in a test. There's no two ways about it. Well, and that's why I was concerned when I saw the Toronto policy here with Chief Saunders just talking about doing that. I mean, you and I just had a discussion a few days ago about staffing concerns uh, with police services right now. If you've got officers that are exposed to this or in some way or form actually ingest this stuff, uh, you can't afford to lose an officer for 28 days, can you? No, you can't. Or a, a number of officers, maybe. You just don't know. Well, and I'll tell you, I think we're going to see, in the, I think it's going to be like anything else, it's going to be a novelty, and you're going to see a, uh, probably a pretty significant usage, at least publicly, you're going to see a lot of that happening, I think, right off the bat. And our officers are going to be exposed to it um, repeatedly. Um, they're being exposed to it right now, Bill, to be honest. I mean, um, you go to calls where as soon as you walk in, you know what's going on, and you're being exposed to that secondhand smoke. Um, you know, and... and if, to add on to all of that, there's the medicinal side of it. What happens when one of these officers is prescribed medicinal marijuana? Um, it, like is, are these services uh, now taking the position that they can dictate what medication officers take? There's a lot of different issues that go with this, and that's why 
it's you know it's our position as associations and i think this is a well i know it's across the province and in fact i met with my peers um last week uh from all across the country the most pragmatic and the smartest way to go about it is the fit for duty approach absolutely and and you you make a good point here i mean let's face it uh cannabis as as a as a pain uh control uh element right now is 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 an acknowledged and in, in in many circles an accepted way of doing things and does that mean that police officers now can't do that and that's that is a concern and again are we talking about the you know the employer getting into the privacy issues surrounding uh medical information um you know that there that's pretty well established that um that an employer doesn't have the right to, to delve into the specifics of an employee's medical history and medical information. So, again, uh, the only way that, uh, you know, if you get tested and you come up positive, is it now your responsibility to explain that, well, actually, that's a prescribed medication that I'm taking. So that opens a Pandora's box. I think, again, we're, we're back full circle. I think if you show up for work, uh, no different than if uh, you know you've, you're, you're coming back from a significant injury and you've been taking uh, it could be anything oxys, morphine, you know, codeine, anything like that to suppress that pain. I would expect that, you know that my officers don't show up you know ten minutes before work and they've popped four or five oxycontins. I, I don't I, it, that to me is just irresponsible and I, that's not what our officers are doing now. What about the jurisdictions and where, where this has already been legal? And we're talking about a couple of places down in the state, some uh, jurisdictions down there. Uh, obviously, they've had to wrestle with this. Uh, any ideas about how they've tried to handle this when it comes to police services? You know what? That's a good question. I've never looked into that uh, to to, uh, to to see what the take is um, from the states. That, I mean, there's no two ways about it. The Americans have a different approach. They have a different approach in so many different ways. So. Well, it would be a good barometer, I'm sure. Uh, it's certainly not an approach that we would take verbatim, if you will. Um, you know, Canadian laws and Canadian um, ways of doing uh, things when it comes to employees and employers and whatnot, the charter, th- those issues I think are significantly different, but it would be a good barometer. I've just never looked into it. Well, and I, I don't know either. That's why I was asking, but you're absolutely right. I mean, even police services are treated much differently down there. Uh, it's, it's, it's a line item on city budgets. I know it is here too, but I mean, there are certain protections uh, in on this side of the border that they don't necessarily have there. I mean, you know, down in the States with people that are in budget crunches, some of those cities actually are laying cops and, and firefighters off. And, and so I don't know how they treat this or how this has gone on or whether people get suspended or anything else. But but is, is there a standard that you would like to see? And I, I know that you're on the record as suggesting that you'd like to see something done on a, on a national or a provincial as opposed to an ad hoc, you know, city-by-city city policy. It, well, absolutely. And um, I've said it, and I'll say it again, that I'm a, it's, it's pretty disappointing that there hasn't been that approach provincially and, and, and nationally because, um, you know, we get into a different realm of issues. Um, you know, it's it's going to take some, uh, I guess, acclimation as far as getting used to the the fact that marijuana is now legal. But for these uh, people, the the younger people who are now going to, you know, seventeen or sorry, eighteen or nineteen years old, when uh, they're able to use it legally, and in three four years they decide they want to become police officers, um, it, I think it's going to have an impact on them. And going back to the staffing issue. 
um, it, you know, if you're going to be looking at a place that um, that has a complete ban, as opposed to one that um, goes with a more pragmatic approach of fit for duty, I think you're going to see and uh, that come into play as well. People, you know, it, it's a mindset that has to change, and I, I think in two or three years, this conversation, uh, we're going to kind of look back and say, boy, that was a lot of conversation over nothing. Well, we'll see. I guess we can't. Uh, we're just talking in the in the you know speculative manner right now. But once the policy rolls out, I'm sure that we'll get down to the nitty gritty and find out just how this is going to talk about uh, roll out, and and how it's going to have an impact on on the people in your service as well. Uh, Clint, thanks so much for the time on this one today. And I know we'll talk about this again in the next couple of days once this thing is uh, down on paper. Thanks for the time, though. Well, thanks for having me. Good having you on the program. Clint Twolan, of course, the president of the Hamilton Police Association. And and by the way, we're talking about police services, but this is a, a policy that's obviously going to impact, as we said, other essential services and every other workplace for that matter, too. I think each and every company is now going to have to have some sort of a policy as to just how this is going to have an impact on their employees. So uh, we'll certainly talk about this a lot more in the days and weeks and probably months ahead. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Keenan Loomis is here, the president and CEO of the Hamilton Chamber of Commerce. Uh, and uh, first of all, thanks for coming in. Good to have you here today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, I want to talk about a couple of things here. But uh, you know, the municipal election, of course, which is coming up in just a few days. Uh, the advance poll starts today, as a matter of fact. There's one going on all day today. Get out and vote. Yeah, get out and vote and talk about this issue. Uh, and, and this is, I, I think it's going to be a ballot box issue. I think this is the thing that's going to motivate a lot of people to vote one way or another in this campaign, for whether it's uh, for their local city councilor or for the, for the mayor. But I want to talk about the, the, uh, the LRT issue because there is so much misinformation, and all you need to do is spend about five seconds on social media to say, no, that's wrong. No, you're not, that's not going on at all. It's got to be frustrating for you because you've been on this file since day one. Yeah, it is frustrating. I've been studying this for years, almost a decade, really. Um, I have to go back to 20, uh, 2009 when I arrived here in town. And the the prospect of the LRT is one of the reasons why I, I really thought Hamilton was going to be a great place to settle and put down roots and uh, raise my family. So, And you're, you're not on the route. You don't live on the route. No, I don't live on the route. Um, I live uh, in the lower city for sure. But uh, it's just because, you know, this is a, an exciting town uh, to be in. If it's, if it's the type of city that is um, being ambitious like this, these are big projects and they require a lot of uh, big ambition. And, um, you know, I've traveled to many cities that have really great transit. I know great cities have great transit and we have HSR. And so we have uh, this great opportunity to upgrade what we have, the infrastructure uh, that we have. And so that's why uh, we're in support. You know, you, you say uh, this is a love train, actually, because it does unite <laughs> a whole ton of organizations and associations in town. Um, and uh, we and the, and the home builders, the Hamilton Halton home builders, the uh, realtors of uh, Hamilton Burlington uh, and the Hamilton Construction Association, we have... Um, started our own uh, Yes LRT campaign uh, in advance of the election. So it's united us as business associations. Uh, we, uh, as business associations, um, we represent 5,000 members uh, in total that uh, employ up to 100,000 people in this community. Um, but it's not just the business associations that are in support of this as well. Uh, there are unions, of course, uh, that are very supportive of this project. The anchor institutions, so you're talking about our educational institutions, our school boards, um, and, uh, and, and DeFasco, and, and the other big uh, uh, institutions in this community. We got transit user groups. We have um, you know groups that, environmental groups, 
groups that represent students, uh, the MSU and the MSA are both uh, highly supportive of this. So there is really a, a ton of unity among uh, the community of leadership here in Hamilton. And, and that's key because it requires leadership not only to obviously get this train built, but to get us through uh, the impacts of construction and then to make sure that we optimize um, the, the benefits coming out of this, the citywide benefits that uh, are going to uh, come out of this. I want to talk to you about citywide benefits. Let's, let's, let's put that as the headline for a second and let's fill in the gaps here, yeah. okay? Because one of the, the things that frustrates me most about this debate is when people say, well, you know what, it's not going to have any impact on me. I'm never going to use it, so I'm opposed to it. Uh, and and th- th- I, I'm, I'm saying, look, at you have a, a responsibility of citizenship here. You live in this community. You, We have to elect people and, and, and put people in charge who are going to look after the best interests and long-term interests of this community. Because I heard that same debate about the expressway mm-hmm. years ago. And this is before, they back in the in the early 90s when, when I started doing talk radio here. And, and they started saying, well, I don't care about it because uh, I live in Dundas or I live in Ancaster. I'd say it does have an impact on your community. Even if you never drive on the road, it's going to have an impact on your community. And look at what happened. We built the thing. Look at the commercial development that's happened as a result of that. Look at the tax base that's increased. That's that's relieved property taxes. People may not look at this and say, well, mine are going up anyway. They would have gone up a whole lot more if you hadn't had this. You, you've got to look at big picture here, and a lot of people just don't want to do that. Well, this is the, the very first phase of a 25-year transit strategy that will reach into all corners of the city. So, you know, we have to look beyond the next uh, election, uh, really. And, and, and transportation planning requires a long time horizon. And what we have to understand is that, you know, this is not just a matter of either suburban versus urban. Um, because as you say, we, we've had this, the big suburban projects, uh, the Link and, and the Red Hill Valley Parkway, and, and there are others uh, that are, are happening uh, right now as well. Um, so now it's time to really address our, our transit infrastructure structure and to to create the backbone that will then allow that all of those other feeder lines. So remember, B line is the B and blast. L-A-S-T are the other four lines that are to come after this. And they're all going to feed in uh, to the LRT system. And so the transit system will be optimized throughout the city. Um, So there's just that. There's obviously the jobs and the investment that go uh, into this as well. and, And those are uh, of obvious benefits to uh, the entire city, and then the um, the ability to broaden the tax the tax base and to accommodate um, you know up to uh, I, I think a hundred thousand people can can be accommodated in the uh, in the lower city uh, just by intensification and, and building out the surface parking lots and uh, doing the development at the at the harbor front um, and all along the uh, the the uh, LRT line. And so that is about growing the pie because we're not going to really be able to appreciably address the whole uh, industrial versus, uh, um, uh, you know, home home uh, owner tax base. That's just going to be very difficult to do. But what we can do is we can grow the pie by adding 100,000 uh, new people into the lower city. Um, and ultimately, we need to accommodate that growth. We're, gonna, we're expected to grow by 200 and 250,000 people in the next 25 years. This city will be a city of a million people at some point. It might not be in your lifetime, Bill. It might not be in my lifetime, but it's going to happen. And this this LRT uh, project is going to be the backbone of that transit system that serves that uh, city of a million people. Well, and it's got to grow. And and you know, I, there have been so many in, in, you know variations on on this debate 
initially it was, well, we don't need this. We should just get better go service. And and my answer to that always was, no, we need both. both. We, we, you got to do yeah. something about what's happening in the city. Yeah, the province has directly dropped the ball on go. We, we should have had all day go here a long time. There should be go service all day go service from Niagara Falls right through to Oshawa. And, and I hope that's going to happen at some point in the future. But we can't just sit here and say, well, we'll just wait for that. We've got to look after ourselves in the meantime, and this is this is the key project, I think, to get that done. Yeah, the, the, the province is eager to invest in things that are going to ultimately have a return on investment. And uh, so obviously GO enhancements are required for regional connectivity, and, and that will uh, impact our, our regional um, uh, uh, transit system. But they also see this project is, is providing a long-term return on investment to the province. So it doesn't have just citywide benefits, which is true. But it has province-wide benefits as well. And that's why this money is still here, earmarked for this project, because this is about a, 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 a long-term return on investment, the, the revenue that's, that's generated from this just by, you know, at the fare box, the uh, development that it unlocks on, along the way. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it, so, so this will, uh, on, in the long term, positively impact the provincial budget. And that's why it's still here for LRT. Now, you no, changed that. I, I want to talk to you about that. Yeah. You have talked to the Premier about this. Uh, you were involved. As a matter of fact, you set up that meeting with the uh, local business folks and, and the Premier when he was in town a couple of weeks ago. So, so this is right from his mouth as opposed to speculative because uh, the argument against now, and it's actually even by you know, Donna Skelly, one of the MPPs for the area, who's been on record as being opposed to this from day one. So I, I, she's been consistent about that to her credit. But they're saying, look, at, you can spend the money on whatever you want. You, you, you get the billion dollars anyway. Is that what the Premier told you guys? Well, I did not talk to the Premier about this project specifically, but I have talked to people within the government. And, um, you know, obviously campaigning is one thing, governing is a whole different thing, especially when you start to really dig into the books and you start to realize that uh, we do have a fiscal mess here on our, uh, on our hands. So, you know, what the, the realities of the situation are going to be such that it's going to be very difficult for us to spend this billion dollars on anything we want because no other investment will provide a return on investment like this one does. And so over the 30-year the time horizon, um, this adds to um, the the and, and improves the, the provincial fiscal situation, whereas if we use this just to buy buses, uh, to fill in potholes, and to close our infrastructure gap for a couple years, um, because that's all this will do, uh, then obviously that has to go through a whole new business case, uh, take years, of course, to come up uh, with, with such a plan, because it's taken us 10 years to come up with this plan, and, uh, and then it's going to be evaluated not only on the business case for those particular projects, but the other thing that they're going to be looking at is the sunk costs that have already been put into this project. And the over $100 million that it has been spent, that has to go into the calculation as well. So that is the reality of the situation. And so, you know, anybody who's saying that this money can be used uh, on anything else, well, it, it's it's simply not true. And um, perhaps we, we go to the back of the line and we, we fight for the same meager st uh, scraps that everybody else is fighting for um, and, and, and all of that. And yeah, there will be some money coming our way because it's due to come our way anyway. But this billion dollars is for LRT and LRT only. Well, and, and I, I know, as you mentioned, campaigning, a lot of things get said and a lot of promises are made. And, and uh, there was one point where Doug Ford, the candidate, 
uh, to be premier, said, yeah, you can do whatever you want with the money. Uh, but they fine-tuned that, that discussion. Even in the last couple of weeks, uh, the message we seem to be getting out of Queen's Park now is, well, if the council says they don't want this, uh, it's still it's got to be go it's got to go towards transit it's got to go it, it, so they're pretty focused on this yeah well and, and and not just transit again this is the project that the money's been earmarked for and so if we if we come up with a different plan and again how many years is that going to take for us to do that right think about this you now all of a sudden <laughs> throw a billion dollars on the table at council do you think you're going to get harmony and how to spend that um, so there's there's you, going to be you, you would have a split vote if they had to devote what day of the week it is <laughs> exactly so so that that is that is the situation, and 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 again, this is for this project only. And and the the province and, and the provincial government, they're they're doing a really great job in, in understanding the biggest issue we have is the provincial debt. We are on an unsustainable path, so they are doing everything they can, and and good on them because this is absolutely necessary to get the the deficit down to zero. And uh, so they're looking at all the projects, and again. Uh, Hamilton uh, LRT provides a long-term return on investment because of all the the, the great benefits, citywide, province, province-wide benefits that it provides. Any other uh, spending plan needs to go through a business case uh, scenario, and uh, not only will it take years, it just again won't survive scrutiny because we have to be really careful about, of our spending here in this province. No, I'm being skeptical too, and I because I, I, I still. You know, I'm not sure that the, I know what the premier said, and I know what he's promised. I know what Donna Skelly has said, uh, speaking, I guess, on behalf of the government. But but given the, the the financial crunch that the province keeps talking about here, and that's huge deficit, I, I, I'm still skeptical that the money's going to come here. But on the other hand, that doesn't mean that we have to just put full stop on this and say, well, probably not going to come anyway. I mean, if if that's an announcement that's going to be made, we'll deal with that when and if it ever happens. But in the meantime, we've got to go full ball ahead, don't we? Yeah, absolutely. We're we're off schedule now. Uh, so we got to get back on schedule. Once this all this silliness is is cleared away and and we're past the municipal election, we can get back on schedule. Uh, the operating agreement, we you know we've got to now. There are three companies, three private sector companies, consortia that have been uh, invited to bid on this, and they don't have yet a deadline for that bid because things are just kind of up in the air. So I would expect that after the election, uh, a deadline is set by uh, Infrastructure Ontario uh, slash Metrolinks. And those companies can get their bids in, and we need we need to get shovels in the ground by 2019 to get back on track. And um, it, you know, it, it it's just as simple as that. A lot of people cringe. You just two two words that, that Hamiltonians just kind of got frightened about infrastructure Ontario, uh, and that goes back to the the stadium issue. But uh, let's put this in perspective. Infrastructure Ontario has done hundreds and hundreds of projects across the province. Many of them here in Hamilton. Uh, the stadium was a bad one. Okay, that that just well, all went uh, hell in a handcart. We know that, but they've done other things too, and they build other LRT plans yeah. in, in other communities as well. Yeah. Uh, they're a good partner to have along here. It's just you know that you, you can't say okay that was a bad one, so we don't want these guys anymore. They're 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 a player here. Yeah, they're they're the right partner, and that's why we have three uh, really incredible consortia of international companies that are bidding on this because because IO and and, and the province uh, really wants to engage. Uh, the private sector uh, globally to invest in Ontario. And I, I know very well that this premier, he wants to build big and he wants to build fast. And uh, this is a project that's teed up for an announcement next year uh, for us to get shovels in the ground. 
So where do we go on this now? You've got this consortium, this group of fe- people that get together, uh, you know, the, 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 the home builders and a number of others like this. Uh, is, is this going to be a contentious issue? I mean, because the, the people I talk to that are in favor of light rail transit are simply saying, look, at, this is much ado about nothing. Even, even the mayor has suggested, look, at, this is not going to be the big issue. I, I, th- I disagree with them. I think it is going to be. And I think it's going to drive people to the ballot box on the 22nd. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I think that this election will be highly clarifying. Uh, for sure. Either way, uh, it it goes. And so we'll figure it out after the election for sure. But um, because it does appear that uh, this is coming down to, to really being the issue for this election, we just thought it, we'd be remiss if we didn't remind people of all the benefits of this project, all the citywide benefits that uh, are delivered by this project, all the jobs uh, that we're relying upon as, as the, the business community um, to be created by this. Um, and again, because we're looking at the long Long term, what's best for our our economy and our community and our membership? Um, we think it's just really important that uh, we remind people how important uh, this project is to Hamilton's future. Which is why I wanted to see the two main contenders for the mayor's job debate this, and I know you did too. Yeah, we um, we put invitations out uh, to both of the contenders, uh, the, the major contenders, and, and they didn't want to go toe-to-toe, and so that's fine. Um, it's just a, another event that we don't have to do. <laughs> you know, we, we do a ton Well, of we did it four years ago, and I thought yeah. it was quite quite well done four years ago when you had the, the breakfast meeting, and then, of course, we had the two-hour debate with three of the contenders. Yeah. I mean, you know, the, you know, Fred's idea that, well, I'm only going to debate with everybody else is a little hollow because he's done it in the past before. Uh, and I don't know what the rationale is because I, I just got this, you know, pat answer from him as to why they're not going to do this. Mm-hmm. And I know that, uh, that Mr. Scrow is quite uh, willing and able to do this. And, and obviously there's no sense having a debate with only one person here. But I think this would add clarity and, and I think define the issues heading into the election. And, and I think it was an opportunity missed for both of these individuals to sit down and have this discussion. Uh, I'm not suggesting, you know, one way or another who would have won the debate. I'm suggesting it would have given people a black and white choice as to exactly where they're going to go on this. Yeah, and I would just remind people that that both candidates were uh, reached out to. We reached out to uh, the mayor. Uh, One of our other Hamilton business leader partners reached out to um, the the other contender, and and they both said no. So um, I don't know why uh, they chose not to do this, but, um, you know, again, we'll – we will see on uh, October 22nd. And by the way, I, I think I'm joining you on that. Yes, evening, yeah. So well, I, you're going to be at City Hall. That. Yeah. Yeah, we're going to be down there. Yeah, we're going to be, be broadcasting from City Hall on election night uh, to bring the results in. This is this is an exciting time. And I know you and I talked about this off the air uh, a couple of weeks ago uh, because this is going to be a new council. And I, I know that, yeah, incumbents usually get reelected 99% of the time. We all know that. But because of the of the ward uh, jigging that's gone on, and a couple of folks that aren't running, uh, and s- th- there's going to be some new faces, at least three, maybe up to five, six. You just don't know right yeah. now. So there's going to be a different flavor to this council. Yeah, and and I'm excited by that prospect. I think that new people, new blood is is really important. Um, I know that there are a number of really high quality candidates running in the wards uh, in which there is no incumbent. Um, and I know that there are a bunch of high-quality candidates that are running against incumbents as well, and we might see a couple upsets there, and um, that might not be a bad thing either. But, uh, yeah, we, we look forward to working with all the, the new counselors and to get them up to speed, especially on uh, the LRT project, because this is going to be one of the, the first and, and, and definitely the, the biggest issue that's going to be on their plate very early on into the new term. 
when we were talking about and debating ward redistribution, this is going back to a number of years now, and, and city council kept dragging their heels on it and said, yeah, we'll look at that some other point. And finally, they, they got this done. But I mentioned at the time, I said, this will cause a change in the character of the council, because it's happening in every other jurisdiction where they've done this. Just by the nature of the fact that you draw boundaries differently, uh, people are going to vote differently, and you're going to see some changes. And I, I'm pretty excited about this. I'm looking forward to what's going to happen on October 22nd. I am, too. And uh, you'll be with us. Kenan's going to join us uh, on air along with a lot of other folks as we broadcast uh, from uh, City Hall on election night. Thanks for coming in today. Really Thanks, Bill. Appreciate the time. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The uh, Ford government uh, continues to uh, roll out the uh, campaign promises, uh, promises made, promises kept, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. With uh, another announcement last night. Uh, the Ontario government has uh, announced that uh, Sikhs will be granted the uh, long-awaited exemption when it comes to motorcycle helmets. Uh, we, by the way, did reach out to the Sikh Motorcycle Club that had been lobbying for this. Uh, they did uh, not have anybody who could talk to us today, but they did issue a statement said uh, that, and uh, this is basically uh, congratulating the government on doing this. Uh, the Sikh Motorcycle Club and several other civil rights supporters welcome this expected exemption as a recognition of civil rights and religious expression, and on and on it goes on that theme. Uh, we also tried to reach out to the uh, Canada Safety Council. Uh, they did not respond to our uh, request for a discussion about this. But I know who did. Alan Carter, of course, who is the uh, co-anchor of Global News at 530 and 6, uh, joins us to talk about this. How are you doing this morning, Alan? I'm doing great. Uh, thanks for having me on, Bill. Great to have you back with us again, too. Does this announcement surprise you? Not really. This was promised um, during the election campaign. I think the way that it came out was a little bit, you know, uh, a bit of a head-scratcher in terms of it was just sort of, uh, announced and then the the premier had a, uh, a press conference for local and, and Punjabi media only, and really invite the press corps, uh, the Queens Park press corps, to to the uh, announcement. You can make of that what you will, but uh, the substance is not a surprise. Well, what do you make of it? Because you're right. I mean, there's usually a great big you know bells and whistles announcement every time that any one of the ministers or the premier himself makes one of these announcements. I'm not sure. I mean, you could say, well, maybe the the premier didn't want to take questions on it, but he is in Alston today, later this afternoon, where he will be hold having a, a media availability, and he will be asked about it today. So we will have later this afternoon more reaction from him, and likely the questions are going to be the questions you probably you've heard from your callers, which is, you know, does this exemption? How, what what impact would it have on insurance, insurance rates? You know, will motorcycle riders as a whole all have to pay a higher premium because of the exemption? Those kinds of questions. Well, and and again, it's the first thing that came to mind when I saw the announcement. And you're right; it was uh, it was kind of surprised that it came first of all in the evening, and like you say, without the bells and whistles. But you usually have these questions, which is why people like yourself and and others, of course, are, have that ability and that right to actually question them about this. Because the first thing I asked about was insurance. I mean, I, I got to think that the Insurance Bureau of Canada uh, and the industry, which is, uh, as you know, has a very strong lobby at Queens Park. Uh, would want to weigh in on something like this, and I wonder if they were even consulted. Um, I, I don't know if there were actual co- consultations. You know, to keep in mind that um, this exemption exists in other provinces. British Columbia has it. Alberta has it. The UK, you know, the entire country, has had it for quite some time. And the experience has been in other jurisdictions that it, the, the numbers are so small um, that it doesn't really move the needle on on insurance. And so far, the the reaction from safety people have been, well, there's, you know, it's not wise. You know, like, uh, for example, um, 
Mr. Patterson uh, from the Ontario Safety League, uh, saying, well, you know, it's just not a smart thing to do, but will it have a greater consequence? Like, will you and I have to pay more because of the exemption? It, there's no evidence that that is the case. Uh, well, we'll I guess that in the fullness of time, I guess, when they finally do start answering some questions. Listen, uh, they, uh, they celebrated uh, their 100th uh, day anniversary uh, the other day with a big party, I'm, I'm told. Uh, and, and rolled out some of the accomplishments. Uh, I, I, the first question I always have is, why do, do we have this barometer of, of 100 days? That seems to be a, 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 I know it's a U.S. thing. They started doing that for the U.S. presidents, but we seem to have adopted it over here. And uh, I guess I, I guess if you've got a lot to talk about after 100 days, you want to do something like that, but it just seems rather arbitrary to me. It is. I mean, you're absolutely right. It's, it, you know, it, it's part of the messaging machine, but, um, you know, it has been the Ford government has been very activist. It has, you know, it's been disruptive. You know, I use that, you know, term neutrally. You know, but it, truly, it has taken a lot of the preconceived ways of doing business and doing and conducting government in this province that we've all been used to for the last fifteen years. And this government has said, no, we're going to do it differently, and has been very active. And you can, you know, there's a lot of people who feel one way or the other about that. But I, I certainly think that the government, um, you know, is, is probably due a celebration to say, look at all the things that we have done. Which is a pretty long list, and, and they started that, obviously, just a day or two after they, uh, they won the election with some of these announcements. I, I, I guess the criticism, though, although it seems to be a consistent criticism from uh, the people that are analyzing some of these decisions, though, Alan, is, okay, you've promised to do this, and you did this. You promised to do that, and you've done that. That's great. But uh, they, they're pretty short on what are the ramifications of some of these policies that they've enacted, and, and, and I think that's got a few people scratching their heads. Well, yeah, I mean, you have to ask yourself, like, I mean, let's take one of their cornerstone moves, which is the cancellation of cap-and-trade. Yeah. You know, they, so they, they're talking about, oh, how are you enjoying that three or four cents uh, liter off gas? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm striving past the gas station now. What do we got? 128.9 right now where I am on uh, Lakeshore uh, in, in Toronto. Oh, it's so I have now forgotten that there was ever a four cents cut off of gas because it's gone back up again. Wow. So, you know, like, and and for that we don't have money for retrofitting schools and you know all these other things that that money was flowing towards. And you know, I, I think there's still some concern about what what's going to be the long term impact of having canceled this, uh, both from a legal perspective on all the lawsuits that the government will face for getting out of this the cap-and-trade system, but also all that money for energy retrofits, we don't have it now. What's the long-term impact of that going to be? And I know that they focused on one particular item and said, look, we don't want to give subsidies for people that want to buy Teslas. I, I get that. I think most Ontarians would agree, yeah, that was that was wrong-headed. But you've just listed a whole bunch of other uh, ramifications of this policy that are going to have a direct impact on, for instance, our property taxes. You know, school boards and municipalities and I were counting on a lot of that money. Uh, we just uh, did a big story here last week here in Hamilton uh, about affordable housing, and they were counting on some of that money from uh, from the cap-and-trade and the green energy program to fund some of the repairs to to, uh, to housing units here. Well, that money's not going to be there anymore. So, I mean, that you know, they're going to come looking into and, and dipping into our pockets once again vis-a-vis property taxes to try to do that work. Yeah, and 
and at the same time, when all of that's happening, you know, we're you know very well, Bill, that you know the next year or so we're going to have a bunch of severe weather incidents in in southern Ontario. I mean, it's just going to happen. We know this, and it's going to remind people again. Well, geez, you know, we are we on the right path here? Well, and that's that's the obvious question. I mean, when it comes to something like that, and and you know, the the, the idea that look at that was the previous government's idea, so we just have to get rid of it. Seems to be a mantra for a lot of new governments these days, and 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 you got to wonder. I mean, you know, the the way they want to paint the picture here, Alan, is everything that the wind government did was wrong, absolutely everything, and we know that's not the case, but that seems to be the way that they're acting. Well, yeah, and you know, we haven't even got to this select committee yet. Now, have you heard about this thing? I'll give you a little bit of quick background on it. This is all stems from the, you know, oh, the liberals cooked the books. They didn't just cook them, they were frying them. They had this huge deficit, with deficits really $15 billion, not, you know, half of that of what the liberals said. Now they got this select committee put together, dominated, of course, by PC MPPs who have already put out a list of documents that they want to see, email from Wynn and Sousa and all of that. And the concern is that this is a witch hunt. It's just a cover for, you know, what's coming, which is next spring. It's going to be a budget that is going to have to have austerity in it or, or else it's going to be just ballooned with reading. Well, and, and the question I have about that is, what are they going to learn, Even if there's anything to learn about this, that it's not already in one of the Auditor General's reports? I mean, Bonnie Lissick was, I thought, pretty thorough in going over the books and, 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 and being pretty critical about the, the, some of the policies of the wind government. That stuff's right there. I mean, read the report. That's, that, that's all the information they need, isn't it? That's precisely the point. And when I had Peter Bethlantalvi on Focus Ontario a few weeks back, and I tried to get him to say the word cover-up. I just asked him again and again, is it a cover-up, yes or no? He would not answer. Because when I talk about, you know, the vast majority of the change in deficit is the PC saying we're going to take the accounting model that the auditor wants uh, with this whole pension asset, super complicated, but right there out in the open. It has been something that we've been arguing about and talking about in this province for years now. It's not hidden. And then the other part of the money is from the Fair Hydro plan. And when the minister was on the show, he's like, well, let me take some time to explain the Fair Hydro. I was like, listen, I don't need you to explain it to me, because I've been to the tech briefing when they announced it, the government. I've been to the briefing from the Auditor General. I've read the reports. Yes, it's controversial, but there is no way that you can say it's hidden or been covered up. Well, and, and that's the, the the message, though, that they're giving out. And I guess, obviously, that's playing to the political base uh, that, that Ford's trying to please at this stage. But the, the reality here is that, like you say, there's it's pretty transparent. Yeah, you may not like the way the government spent money, but, it, you know, it's, it's, it's there. There's the money that went out. There's the money for the program. There's the people that are paying into the program. And it's all in the Auditor General's report. So the, this is I, your, your terminology of a witch hunt, I think, is bang on in a situation like this. Uh, and and it, it, you know if they want to you know keep dumping on the previous government they've got all the ammunition they have already with the the, the auditor general's report yet they're going to spend an awful lot of time and money to dig up something that really probably isn't even there. Well, it's a you know, and I think in some ways it, it, it's an indication of the new way of politics south of the border and here, which is. Never, ever stop campaigning. Never take your foot off your opponent's throat. Don't let them get up back up off the mat. 
you know. And so, you know, when the when when Premier Ford says the Liberals need to be held accountable, I think to myself, well, seven seats is kind of accountable, isn't it? Yeah, like they just got wiped off the electoral map almost. Isn't that accountability? I mean, they can't even fill a table in the Queen's Park cafeteria right now with their caucus. And, <laughs> and, and you know, the, the accountability thing kind of goes out the window, doesn't it? I mean, they were accountable, and the, and the, the people in Ontario kicked them out of office. I mean, that's, that's it. If they're insinuating criminal charges, though, Alan, there's a process in place for that, isn't there? Well, there is. And, of course, you know, we've asked a number of times when you hear this strong rhetoric, both from the Premier and also his economic development, Mr. Monty McDonald, who always goes off on, you know, and even Vic Fidelian, uh, you know, very, very strong language about cover-up and all the rest. It's like, well, okay, are you going to call the OPP? Uh, well, no. So I think when you hear that, you realize that this is firmly in the world of rhetoric. Well, yeah, I, I mean, because they've done that. I mean, they, they tried the well, the OPP and investigated. Well, they tried to do that with the Sudbury by-election, the, the gas plants, and a number of other things. And uh, and and there was, you know, lev- various levels of success or failure, I guess, depending on which perspective you're going to look into the set. Like, but but the, the, you know, do that. I mean, if you think there's something illegal going on, it sh- should not be. I would think a, a legislative committee of a bunch of uh, of of conservative MPs that are actually going to look into this. Get the experts to look into it. Yeah, exactly. Well, here's here's something I'll tell you. Is I recently ran into Charles, who's a um, former finance and, and how's he doing these days? <laughs> he, has, he has a great big white beard now. Uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, and he was very congenial and very and very complimentary. I actually talked about the interview with Peter Bestlandfaldi that I was just talking about. But I asked him. I said. Are you concerned you're going to get called in front of this committee? And with a twinkle in his eye, he said, oh, please let them call me. Please. Like, I think, I think both Wynn and, uh, you know, other senior members of the Liberal cabinet are not concerned. They think that, they think that being in front of that committee, that they'll just carve the committee up. It'll be interesting theater. I, I kind of hope it happens. Well, it's it's the new wave, as you mentioned, of politics. I mean, the mantra now seems to be kill your enemies and dig them up three days later and kill them again. Uh, but but how much how much of that is is the public going to take? Well, I you know you you have a, a a shelf life on it, obviously. Like you like you know in, in terms of all new governments, you have a certain amount of time to be able to come in and say, well, the other guys were just horrific, and oh my goodness, the cupboard is bare, and oh, we can't do it. Like, you only maybe have a year maybe 18 months on the outside before the public's going to start saying, okay, I'm a little tired of that song and dance. What have you done for me lately, Janet Jackson? Well, it'd be interesting to see just when the, the, the you know the, the time runs out on this because it's it's getting a little redundant right now. And I mean, yeah, because obviously this is the uh, the art of deflection, which is another great political tool, of course. Uh, I mean, you're right. I mean, you know, Trump's still doing it. I mean, he's still blaming Obama for everything, and this is halfway through his, his term uh, as president. So I guess you have to expect the same sort of thing uh, happening with the Ford government. But uh, the honeymoon period, I guess, is still on with these guys, isn't it? Well, I think so. I mean, you remember, we're, we're, we're not even six months yet. So for, for the Ford government, you know, their, their base is just eating this up. And I think that even a fair bit of moderates uh, are, you know, approving of the speed, at least, in which Ford is acting. I think the, there's two big hazards for Ford ahead. One is if he continues to govern in this disruptive manner, 
province of Ontario is so Bill Davis is not too hot, not too cold, right down the middle. Mm-hmm. We are as vanilla and plain as they come, and that's not a criticism. That's just the way we are as an electorate. And I think the disruptive nature of the Ford government will wear very thin if he tries to do it for the entire tenure of his mandate. And people will start to get very, very tired of you know, this constant battle. Uh, very quickly, i got about 30 seconds left. Uh, who you got on Focus on Terror this week? Rob Benji from the Toronto Star is going to come in and talk about your favorite thing, 100 Days, or as <laughs> titled the show this, year, this week, 100 Days, D-A-Z-Y, uh, E, by the way, I can't even spell anymore. Uh, so, uh, yeah, we'll be talking about that. Um, and also Tim Hudak is on the show, former PC uh, yeah. now with the Ontario Real Estate Association. And uh, he's going to be talking about what that organization wants the Ford government do to help millennials, you know, your, your and my favorite age group, help millennials get into the housing market. Uh, Saturday uh, late afternoon and, of course, on Sunday as well on Global TV. Check your local listings for it. Uh, Alan, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for this today. Bill, thanks for much, so much for having me on. Take care. Alan Carter, of course, uh, co-host and co-anchor of uh, Global News at 530 and 6 and, of course, of Focus Ontario. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML.